Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the first ever edition of Hikma History Podcast. I have my first ever guest with me, and I'm really excited. She's got a really fascinating subject, uh, and I'm going to let her do the introductions for herself. Well, hi, I'm Taslima. I'm a first-year PhD student at SOAS, and my topic is on the socio-political effects of external trade from the caliphate between 700 and 1100, but we're working on it. Okay, so that's the Abbasid Khalifat, right? Abbasid and late Umayyad. Abbasid and late Umayyad, okay. All right. So you said it's specifically with uh, just with India or is it with other countries as well? It's with other countries as well. So it, it, right now in its formative, very formative phase, it includes Central and East Asia and Europe. This year I'm focusing on Europe and South Asia. Okay. Okay. So why such divergent areas? I mean, they're like on opposite sides of each other. Well, because the caliphate was right in the middle and the caliphate was dealing with everyone. And you have to remember that when we look at historiography, it's either how the caliphate went to war with everyone else on the yeah. eastern eastern side in, in Asia or it's uh, European trade and khalas, that's it. Yeah. Nobody really talks about the rest of it, but there was a whole system of roads and trade routes and people being transferred, uh, slaves especially, and so you have to think about all of it instead of negating the rest of it. Right, history. right. No, definitely. I, I, I get that. I'm a big fan of military history myself, but after a while, it can seem pretty, uh, you know, repetitive and it's oh, just yeah. not fulfilling enough, you know, in terms of providing you a proper mm. picture of what things were like back then. Yeah. And so this isn't military history. Uh, it was probably like 1% of my work. Right, right, right. That yeah. makes sense. That makes sense. You know what, I'm actually kind of surprised it doesn't make sense because uh, I would have thought that military history would constitute a little bit more than a percent. You know, like some of these countries that you're mentioning, I would have assumed at some stages the Abbasids have antagonistic relations in terms of battles and wars with them. Does that not, how much does that factor in to trade? I would have assumed it's totally catastrophic. No, not with the external trade. Inside, yes, with Byzantium definitely uh, the Sassanid Empire definitely but we're looking at outside when it's too far away to properly fight with oh, okay, when okay. you have to have diplomacy because <laughs> right. otherwise you're overstretched okay so uh, do you yeah. look at the diplomatic aspect of it as well definitely yeah that's fascinating okay so just from how much you've researched I'm always interested in knowing how much one group of people know about another group of people yeah can you can you tell uh uh, the degree to which the Abbasids knew about some of their trading partners or were they relying upon not to sound condescending just typical generalizations that you would assume from the 8th and the 9th century weirdly no there was so much knowledge within the caliphate whereas we have people from geographers in Baghdad plotting out routes into Central and East Asia, like Um And they had never been. It's just from everything that I'd heard, that they, they had heard, travel accounts, the fact that the caliphate really wanted to know. So they had people, like, um, map out how they went, sketches, right. all of that. And there are entire accounts of people studying, literally studying the routes and how people would move, how horses would move, how camels would move. Right. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. Uh, I heard about a, a guy. I don't know if he falls into your area. Ibn Fadlan. Mm. Is he is he in th that type of period? He's a traveler, he is, right? Yeah, but he goes into Central Asia. Right. Uh, he 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 does do a travel account. There's a really good translation of it out now. Whereas, um, with a new project out in America, where all of the old Arabic sources are slowly being translated, but line for line. So you get the right. Arabic line and then the English line. It works out really well, but it's really funny. It's something that I'm supposed to look at next year. But um, 
it's it's more of a personal account um and a lot of it is him wondering what are these heathens doing and why are they behaving like this okay. and god forgive me but um Yeah so th- but there is definitely at least a level of cooperation he does seem to admire some of it some of their martial strength and all of that right but it's not what i'm looking at this right 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 yeah. okay so uh i assume when you talk about trade you're going to be looking at um like commodities yeah. to a large extent yeah, right yeah, yeah. is there any commodities that you focus on or so ceramics slaves what are ceramics uh, again i always ceramics like um Pottery, pottery, okay, yeah, okay, okay. like um, you know, painted glassware. Right, 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 right. Okay, um, yeah. So you said ceramics. I'm guessing Slaves, silk. Silks, um, silks has a, a lot of contention right now. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, because of obviously Islamically, men aren't supposed to wear it, but there's definite evidence that it was being bought by the caliphate. Now it was definitely worn by women, mm-hmm. and in some of the depictions, uh, it shows not of anyone important in terms of religiosity mm-hmm. but it shows men wearing it but then at the same time we don't have just muslims living in the caliphate so you have to of course, you have okay. to think about all of that as well i actually didn't know that uh, men are not supposed to wear silk in islam do you know why that is um i knew gold is kind of forbidden right yeah i think it's along the same lines of oh, okay. you shouldn't be humility yeah humility right. and you sh- men should be a bit m- right more humble really. yeah <laughs> i mean <laughs> i mean there's more of an imperative on men to be so right right in the rhetoric at least that's just where he is i mean the channels of power are 99% open to them so you would <laughs> you would want a counterbalancing exactly. uh, uh, effect uh you mentioned another really interesting commodity it's kind of rude to call it a commodity yeah, yeah. but i guess we have to be scientific about it slaves yes talk to me more about slaves so at the time that i'm looking at and what i'm focusing on is i'm focusing on um slaves but they were mostly women at this point or right. very young boys that okay. could be um how how what's a sensitive way of putting it, putting it they could t- be turned into eunuchs basically okay okay um but more so women mm-hmm. um and what's really interesting is that we have accounts of um the slavic states selling women through venice mm-hmm. and other italian states but mainly venice to the caliphate and it happening on such a large scale that the pope interjects and he's and he turns around and says how well, how can you do this how can you fe- sell fellow christians um to heathens to heathens basically right, yeah. and they're, they're, they're probably devil worshippers what are you doing venice obviously doesn't care they're Trying making so money. much money <laughs> so what century is this um all the way up until 1000 and later that's fascinating because i i, I know that venice is a maritime you know i don't know a superpower but it's very powerful mm. uh, in terms of uh, maritime capacity in like the 11th 12th 13th 14th 15th century yeah. i didn't know it goes that far back yeah but you have to remember that there has to be prior knowledge for all of this to happen later right right so that so is what the foundation up. is yeah. built upon right yeah. so there's definitely a build up there has to be diplomatic relations they have to be aware of each other's languages mm. have to be aware of how much everything is worth right um, okay women were also unfortunately seen as a sign of um prestige and wealth so if you had been able to and a quote unquote import a woman right um whether that be from east africa whether she be from east africa to uh the slavic states so even india uh, which we know is um still the case 
it was seen as a sign of look at how rich I am, look at what I can do. Um, whilst right. it's deplorable, you know, it happened. <laughs> That's really interesting. So, can you denote a? It's gonna sound. Uh, but can you denote a like uh, a hierarchy of which places they would have preferred their females, or is there none of that? Um, I just think that the further out from which they were from what I can tell so far I haven't been studying it right. for very long from further out I couldn't tell that they were there was uh, there was definitely more of a oh look what I have because she would look more different um, and so I, it's like the exoticness of it the exoticness of it right, and the okay. um, uh, it's kind of fetishization on both sides of the Mediterranean. They, they were definitely, uh, and up into up to East Asia as well. The, there was the there was a level of women being commodified to a point where it became an issue of where they're from. Oh, look, they have grey eyes or they have green eyes. Right. This is really different. What I, one thing I would find really fascinating is the degree to which the um, let's call them quote unquote foreign exotic female slaves, mm. how legitimized they became once they came into the Islamic world proper. Like, I read an article that said by the end of the last Ottoman Khalif, mm. he was apparently something like less than, a qu- less than a quarter or less than a third ethnically Turk. Yeah. Because the mothers had been Serbian, mainly Greek, yeah, Serbian, yeah. and, you know, other Turkic groups and things of that nature. I wonder if you if you could have a foreign exotic uh, female slave if you could allow if you would be allowed to wed her yeah you know, or would she just be a mistress or a concubine I think you you were allowed to wed her it's not what I'm looking at because right, I'm right. looking at like the external effects are mainly how they came in and how they left and um uh, more in terms of how the people interacted with one another in order for this to happen mm. and how that affected the outside places or how that affected Europe, how that affected East Asia, how that affected East Africa. Um, and whilst obviously it is disturbing and I, I completely agree with that, it's one of those things where I haven't looked at it in the caliphate proper, but what I know is that there isn't a notion of... Um, a child being illegitimate in mm. the sense that you know the idea of being born in sin mm-hmm, children yeah. are not because they don't ask to be born right okay um which i i guess is a saving grace but it doesn't obviously nullify everything else that happened right, right. um but there isn't a sense of you inherit inherit less however there is a sense of um still you, you know that tribal thing of the strongest brother or the strongest male comes out as the head of the family. Right. Um, And you get that with a lot of caliphates, but I am not focusing on that right now. Okay, okay. That's really interesting. Uh, Just moving away from the slave issue real quick, uh, before I have to ask you, Slavic. Mm. Is there a a correlation between slave and Slavic? No way. Slave states, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah. How do you say Slav in uh, in Arabic? There's a term for it, no? Sakhalibi? Or is that Crusader? Yeah, I I did. It depends on the century you're looking at and the region as well. Oh, okay. Uh, and some of it still has uh, really bad racial connotations because of what's still happening in the Middle East. So some of the words like I just genuinely wouldn't say because it's the equivalent of saying a racial F- slur. Okay, okay. Um, does that make sense? So even if I see you kind of lost me a little bit. Would you mean the modern Middle East? What's happening in the modern Middle East? Um. Like sectarianism, you mean? No, not just sectarianism. The way that um, 
you know, the labor force right now is sometimes treated with the issues that are going on now in um, the Emirates and what you see in like foreigners. You yeah, mean, with like foreigners, Filipinos and Filipinos, um, uh, black people, right. uh, South Asians as well. And so it's not. Are you saying they use similar terms as they did back then? Um, they they are kind of the same and similar terms, but they've taken on different meanings as time goes past, and they become more triggering to people. Right, right, okay. Uh, which which makes sense because mm. of everything that's happened, but then that also means you have to be responsible about talking about it. Hundred percent, hundred percent. But it's kind of interesting that, that that in terms of historical continuity, mm. not to focus too much on the negative, mm. but in terms of historical continuity, it does show a continuity of uh, attitudes. Yes. Right? Yes. Oh, and the idea yeah. of um, things taking on a meaning of their own after a while. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to get too deep into the rabbit hole of semantics, but yeah. that is really <laughs> tricky and yeah. definitely important. But know. my research is on trade routes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. Let's get back to trade routes. Okay, cool. Um, that's pretty interesting. Mm. That's pretty interesting. Because the reason I say that's interesting is because that, in my head at least, that naturally dispels pretty rigid notions of uh, I am me, I am the mm. caliphate, I have one type of identity mm. which is separate from yours uh, religiously, socially, culturally mm. and everything mm. and you have a different one mm. but then we will do trade, you know, like intimate trade, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. slaves and, uh, you know, just other really important commodities as well. Yeah, but then you also have to remember that Charlemagne, uh, Charles the Great, he uh, calibrated his gold solidus when he became um, king, emperor, whichever way you want to talk about it, he calibrated it to the gold dinar of Abdel Malik, who had calibrated it to the gold solidus of Justinian. What does that mean, calibrated? They had the same amount of gold in them, so you can just exchange them, right? Right, um, okay, okay. Or they had enough that like two would equal one, so you'd know exactly how much you were trading on, mm-hmm. a, on a scale. Um, but yeah, Abdel Malik had made it the same as Justinian II. So there's also there's already a level of proto-globalization and they're all dealing with one another, calling each, each other heathens and the rest of it. Right, right. <laughs> but they're still dealing with one another. They're still uh, facilitating trade. They're making sure that those economic avenues stay open. Right, okay. That's really interesting. Hmm. But yeah. That's pretty interesting. So what about, um, like, I'm assuming that different regions have, like, different commodities that they kind of specialize in, right? Yeah, so um, the Arabs wanted to buy horses and swords from the Franks from Europe. Um, And then Charlemagne's court got silks and spices and gold from the Arabs who had got the silks and the... What else did they get from East Asia? Ceramics from East Asia, but they got the spices um, and a lot of the gold from Central and South Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a whole network of different people buying different things from one another. Right. And the arrows being in the middle and at the, at the forefront of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Can you do me a favor and just bring your microphone a little closer to your mouth? Like here? Yeah, like when you're speaking. Okay. Yeah, yeah? that's cool. Um, so... Do you focus on why they wanted certain commodities? Um, so I'm going to look at the commercial one. I don't know the commercial value in Baghdad. Okay. Because that was the center of the caliphate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you look at the court just to basically 
measure why it was that they did what they did mm-hmm. um with the you know with the increasing of a sedentarized society you need a standing army and for a standing army you need a monetized economy you can't have them continually plundering people which means that you need to have something renewable which also means that you need to facilitate trade access which means that you have to have diplomacy that was really fascinating but we got to slow that down because i feel like that's super important so <laughs> let's do that whole cycle again please slowly <laughs> okay so you have the increase of an administrative caliphate, right? Yeah. More and more, there's more red tape. Yeah. And with that comes people settling down from being nomads. Not completely, but more. Because you have more, more like cities and settled. More cities uh, and settles and they're being encouraged to settle down. Okay. And then because of that, you have a standing army. Okay. Now, the problem with the standing army is that they're always standing, right? So you, so pay you for need them. to pay for them. Right. And because you need to pay for them, you can't continually have them plundering because of the fact that they need to go further and further and further as your empire gets bigger. That starts costing money. Right. Okay. Um, and you need to have young men for agriculture as well. So you can't completely always send them off. Mm, mm, okay. Um, obviously, women were also very, very involved in agriculture. You can't deny that. So were children. Right. Um, Otherwise, food would come to a standstill during war. Yeah, and then, I would imagine. Yeah, so, and then because of that, you have to have an economic avenue in order to, in order to take money to make it a monetri- monetarized society. Are you talking about taxation now? Um, not just taxation. You need to have, instead of um, terms of uh, bartering, mm. you need to have cash, right? Oh, okay. Um, and then... When bartering still existed, but you needed something to underlie it because people were traveling further. What do you mean by bartering? Bartering, like, oh, I'll give you one sheep for a sack of, uh, four sacks of rice or oh, stuff like oh, that. Oh, like okay. So you, right, right. <laughs> so you need, like, actual cash. You need cash. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, and then because of that, they also started, they started to try and figure out where they can come from. So they started sending out emissaries and um, diplomats in order to figure things out. And those emissaries and diplomats are also traders. Um, and traders were also the best to do this because they figured out the quickest place, the quickest way to get to places. They usually knew the language, which is always a help. Even now when you go traveling, it's better to know the language than yeah, not know the language. Yeah. Um, and you also figure out if someone's open to trading with you or not. Um, and so that's the cycle that you have. Right, okay. Okay. Do you look at at all what the Abbasids look to uh, in terms of uh, motive, uh, inspiration rather uh, about like trade? Like I'm saying, did they did they look at the Byzantine system of trade or did they look at Persians? Because I know that they subsumed and absorbed a lot of Persians into their bureaucratic yeah. system to, to teach them and kind of learn mm-hmm. how to do trade with these far off places. Do you look at that at all? Um, I look at before Abdul Malik, you have to remember the Umayyad one, right? Yeah, no, no, Abdul Malik, as in the Abbasid. The, the, no, sorry, Abdul Malik, the Umayyad. Seven oh five to seven fifty. Seven fifty. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah um, okay, cool. So, um, he introduced the first Islamic coinage. Yeah. Now, the Islam had by then been around for half a century at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And what they used beforehand was the Byzantine and Sasanian coins. No and way. So yeah. let's let's back that up. So before Abdul Malik, they were using Byzantine coins as their official currency. 
it wasn't the official currency. It was just what they were using because that's what they had. Right. They hadn't. Okay. They hadn't used any. They hadn't made any currency, so oh, there wasn't wow. a need for it. And then you have a monetized. Why was there economy. no need for it? Because everything was bartered. Yeah, there was no oh. nomads, and also they they hadn't had a. They were still figuring out the administration, and it was easier to use the coinage that was already in place. Because if you want to introduce a coinage, you have to first figure out what the script is. You have to figure out what, who the caliph is, or, or who the head of state is, and then you have to set up a mint. And for that mint, you need metal. And for that metal, you need smiths. And for that, and there, there's a whole. S- so it's cycle. like a whole industry. Go- it's a yeah. whole industry, and you have to have the raw material set in place. You have to have all of the legitimization set in place for this coinage to mean anything, anyway. Mm, I like that the leg- legitimization. So n- not any, but on any random person couldn't just set up his own mint and his own coin, right? I mean, no. I mean, th- I'm sure they tried. Yeah. There was counterfeiting. It usually led to economic. Not economic, corporeal punishment. Okay. Um, now, well, another thing that they did was that the Byzantines had taken on the Berid system from the Romans, which was, you know, the relay system. Say that again, which system? The Berid. Berid. Yeah, okay, no, the, re- the relay system. So um, you basically have really long stretches of road. And instead of having um, one guy go through the entire road, you would have stations in between and it was a relay system. So he would give... The message oh. and then it would carry on and, then it, and that way it would it's be non-stop yeah. um, and so the guy could basically rest at the um, rest stop but whoever was there would just carry on Okay. Um, and that also facilitated trade because what happened was those rest stops turned into merchant stops and then they also turned into pilgrim stops right. you know to Mecca and then obviously pilgrims spend a lot of money usually Yeah. Um, and then and slowly, 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 that increases movement of people, right? Wow, okay, okay. That's pretty interesting. I never thought about it uh, on such a deep level like that. Just the, the outgrowth of, of, of like, systems. Mm, yeah. Like that, and how, with time, things get more yeah. sophisticated. Because we talk about the globalization, like, Abu Lagood is really good about it during the 14th century, but you have to realize that for that to have happened, there had to have been prior knowledge. People had to decide that that was a good idea because of what they knew right yeah <laughs> um so it's one of those things oh okay that's pretty interesting all right all right you know what i wonder about this is a little bit different from your from your research mm. but my mind just wandered to marco polo yeah right like how can marco polo just commence on that journey from like northern italy he, he was venetian right I yeah think. he didn't what do you mean? I mean, he first of all, his um, uncle and his dad had done it before him. And it was a really well-plotted out travel route. By okay. then, people had been doing it for hundreds of years. It's it funny you say that. So he was on... Um, there's this... There's this... BBC show called Panel Show. It's a joke panel show called Insert Name Here. And they had said, oh, Marco Polo was the first European to go to East Asia and introduce both sides to one another, basically. And then the lady went on to say, oh, but he wasn't the first. And I got really excited then thinking, they know, right? They know. And then she went, oh, his father and his uncle. And I was like, no, it happened way, way earlier. Really? Yeah. um, So because of the fact that... um, we have evidence of the Mongols meeting Europeans and wanting to come all the way up to Europe just to see what it was like, it, diplomats, but the Europeans genuinely being afraid mm. to show the Mongols just in case the Mongols decided to come up. Uh, and attack them? Yeah. Okay, okay. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> I didn't know that. But 
All right, so that brings me on to like uh, something that I've always been interested in, mm. which is something the, uh, the Silk Road. Yeah. Oh yeah? God. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, obviously, I understand that it's not one physical road. Yeah. Connecting, okay. Thank uh, God. Right. Uh, Europe to East Asia. Yes. But what did that look like in reality? Like the Silk Road. It was a network of roads, and that because of ecological issues, um, pre-modern times, not having paved roads all the time um it moved around but it was essentially a network of paths that led you to one place to another now a lot of the time that was also used by armies because that was the quickest way to get from one place to another okay um but in the period that i'm talking to talking to you about um it moves from a land route to a naval route right no way i thought that was way after no so what we have is there's an increase of using boats because you have to remember that when you use camels and when you use horses we don't have horseshoes yet so mm. you have to literally wait for the horses hooves to grow back philip works is really good about um this in his lectures but so wait, 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 let's talk about it so if a horse doesn't have horseshoes yeah the the hooves yeah. the thing right at the bottom of his yeah. uh, shoes they will just erode away yeah and then you have to wait for it to grow back f- before it can otherwise this it will really hurt the horse's feet no way yeah, yeah. so how quickly does it take t- for a horse's feet to erode to like to get rid of the hooves oh well, no, i'm not sure how long that takes it obviously depends on the path and how stony it is and all of that mm. but for it to grow back i mean like it would have to be strong enough to withstand traveling again so it would wow, okay. it would take a good while i didn't know that yeah okay, okay. that's why campaigning seasons are whole seasons you couldn't mm. just go off to war you needed the horses to be ready that's right? part of the reason huh yeah, yeah. okay so you said philip Wirtz has some good work on this i mean in his lectures yeah okay okay cool yeah. cool um all right sorry i think i cut you off were you in the middle of a thought oh no with the naval roots it's just yeah, that yeah. um we have earlier versions of this um, we even have the Belitung shipwreck which shows mass consumption of ceramics um, in what is that what is the Belitung shipwreck so it was found in Southeast Asia it dates back to about the 7th 8th century and it has tens of thousands of examples of ceramics okay that and we realized that that must have been oh we realized that that must have been um, a mass production. Okay. For that time, and so normal people must have been buying it. Wow, okay. okay. Which also informs why they might have needed money instead of things to buy things with. Right, right. Um, and it also had things like gold, and it had um, glassware, and silver as well, but we're not completely sure what the silver was. I need to have a closer look at it, because unlike gold, which keeps it safe, silver and lead sort of congeals into one another in seawater. What does congeal mean? melts into one another it just oh, becomes really? a lump <laughs> really yeah oh, okay uh, do we know who it was from to whom it was from east asia right do you it, know which part that's probably the tang dynasty right probably okay um although and i think i'm pretty sure it was going down to the caliphate or nearabouts um even if it was going to south asia it's very possible that arab traders would buy it from there oh, okay um, so yeah that's really cool i thought when you were talking about trade between the caliphate the uh, abbasid caliphate and india you were just talking about the land route through persia no 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 so there were boats as well and what's really interesting is that because of the fact that um iron wasn't in east asia to the same degree that it was in europe the way that the boat was made it was kind of like they locked in the wooden planks locked into one another and it was woven in to create a boat instead of being nailed whereas europe had nails because it had the big iron, iron oh, steel um, okay. but it still existed 
I wonder if that has something to do with the industrialization, the industrial revolution and how European countries made use of things like steel and mm. things like that. Yeah, I remember asking about that in my modern China lecture with um my lecturer she was from Hong Kong actually, not China proper, but well mainland China and what happened was she was saying that a lot of it had also to do with feng shui because um China What's had, feng shui? Um I think I'm not completely Is sure. Is that that decorative means. style? I think that's a Europeanized version of okay. what people believe. Right, right, because I saw um, it in an episode of uh, Friends. Yeah, um, so <laughs> um, she was basically saying how people thought that it would be spiritually negative to burn a lot okay. of the um, natural resources. Nice, whereas okay. in Europe, they don't have that thing, that belief, because obviously Christianity didn't. I don't think demand that at that no, time. I don't think so, no. um, but because I was thinking, it's so weird because China is so rich in raw materials. So mm. why didn't it happen for them until now? And it happened to Europe so much oh, earlier. Oh, so you're saying it might be like the whole fe- uh, Feng Shui thing? Oh, that's what I was told in class. <laughs> Fascinating. I don't know if it's true. That's really know. interesting yeah. because, like, I'm a pretty cynical person. So I would assume that the the desire to make money would override the need to protect the environment but if the opposite happened that would be fascinating I don't know if it was protecting the environment it was protecting the spiritual soul yeah same thing no I'm kidding (laughs) okay 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 yeah 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 that's pretty cool but like that's outside the remit of what we want to talk about oh I gotta research that that's pretty interesting yeah but um you know another thing that I'm interested about is Mm. so if we're talking about maritime trade Mm. in my head nothing pops up in terms of ports for the Khalifat Where's the ports? There's, there's loads. I mean, you apart have from like Jeddah and Medina, yeah, right? Yeah, and then you also have um, Cairo. You also have yeah. um, s- near Sindh. You also have um, th- th- East Asia. Um, I can't remember the specific cities, but you have ports, but they're not what you think of them as now. What do you, you mean? You know, with the whole um, specific dock and um, looking a bit scruffy industrially (laughs) industrially but they definitely existed Mm -hmm. um and we are aware that a lot of arabs and europeans and everyone else had local families in those ports because when you were there you were usually there for a couple months Mm -hmm. um and that's how you sort of got around language barriers and someone to keep your business and house in order in whilst you were away Mm -hmm. um unfortunately because of the lack of of written sources we're not completely sure how that worked but we were, we're like 90 percent uh-huh. sure or 95 percent sure that it, that's what was i was just on. about to say that would be so interesting if there was like a written account mm. of like think about how interesting it would be if there was a written account of a trader that had a family i don't know in like uh somewhere like in cairo mm. and then he went off to trade in guangzhou in eastern uh, china mm. and then he created another family there yeah i mean it's that's do you think that's possible that they definitely saw? really <laughs> yeah um, but we have that issue all the way in in the colonial period, even in the eighteen hundreds, seventeen hundreds, where um, we know that these people had families in Southeast Asia because they would sometimes bring the kids back, and that wasn't by that wasn't that okay. wasn't a miracle, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But nobody would speak about who was at home. Right. Well, when I say at home, as in 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 the other country. Right, right, right. That's fascinating, huh? Oh, that's such a shame that there's no written records of that. Let's some hope. of it, it, there are some letters for the colonial period, but not for the period that. Right, right, okay. Especially when you look at South Asia, because of the fact that the climate isn't conducive to um, 
preserving texts. Let's talk about that a little bit because I'm really interested about that. Uh, um, so the first time I was exposed to that line of thinking was when I was doing my master's and yeah. there was a dude named uh, Conrad. Yeah, Herschler. Con- Conrad Herschler. Yeah, Thank yeah, you for yeah. remembering his name. S- super smart, super cool guy. Um, and he told me, because we had to do it on the nature of uh, medieval uh, evidences. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. He had a module which was really interesting. Yeah. Um, and he told me that it's pretty tough to find... Uh, you know, textual evidence yeah. uh, in uh, the Middle East on the same level as uh, uh, Europe because yeah. the the, the I think climate. He, the climate is pretty humid. Yeah. What does that mean exactly? It means it rots. Paper rots. Yeah, it was just rot, and because it's not the type of paper we have now, right? Because a lot of it was plant based, like papyrus and things like papyrus that. Papyrus, and even even before that, even if you had the paper that um, we that was Chinese in origin that is used now, mm-hmm. because it's plant based. And it's humid and it's wet. After a while, it just rots. Oh. It would just congeal and turn into some sort of mush. So were they using the same type of material to make their paper in Europe? Uh, much later. Much, much later. So then why Europe, in Europe? The manuscripts were usually made. This is a paleography lesson now. But they're yeah, usually made from um, skin. Sometime, mostly from animal skins. We have a few accounts of human skin. But what you do is you scrape it and you put it in acid. Wait, wait, you did you say human skins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the very uh, anomalous, like... Right, right, okay, okay. One in... It's pretty weird. I mean, come on, it's the early Middle Ages. Mm. Um, so you scrape it and then you put it in acid. And now that might be urine or whatever else. And then you scrape it again and you make it as smooth as possible. But it was mostly vellum. Vellum? Yeah. I think I've heard of that. What is, okay. What is Vellum? Okay. That's pretty cool. That's so interesting. So that kind of probably uh, helps the whole notion of why in Europe there wasn't as many libraries and books at such, you know, like in the Mm. 1100s. Yeah, I mean, because uh, this is another thing that I'm looking at is that the first Carolingian Renaissance happened, uh, you know, you have the later Renaissance with the Enlightenment, but the first Carolingian Renaissance happened during around the 8th century, uh, 8th, 9th century. And what it was... Who's that, like Louis the Pious and stuff? Louis the Pious and before him, his dad, Charlemagne. Charlemagne, of course. Um, and it was because these Greek texts were turned into Latin, but they were Greek, then Arabic, then Latin. Is that through Al-Andalus? I, some of it, yeah, but I not I did my... Un- okay. So where was the other roots? Because I did my undergrad on the transmission of knowledge from uh, Al-Andalus to like, uh, Europe. So it was, pretty, it was pretty widespread through the caliphate. We have, we have evidence of commentaries on Greek workers being sold in marketplaces and then... Um, Arab scholars talking to one another about this is the place you should go to get this book and this is the place you should go to get right. that book, and um, and it's quite interesting because there was a it was a sign of prestige if you understood it all. Right, right. It was the thing that scholars did. I can imagine. Yeah. Okay. The one 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 really fascinating case study I still remember was that of uh, you know Pope Sylvester. I, the name rings a bell, but... Right, so he was a pope at the turn of the first millennium. Mm. And he, I think, is supposed to be one of the most learned... It's an interesting word. One <laughs> of the most learned popes of all time. Mm. Um, he was a scholar before he became a pope. And mm. he took... Uh, he served his intellectual apprenticeship, if you want, mm. uh, in northern Al-Andalus. Okay. And apparently, it's th- 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 through his time there mm. that he learned uh, about... Something I still don't really get, but the way that it's been taught to me is just a medieval calculator, uh-huh. the abacus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently he's the one that introduced the, the, the abacus into Europe or reintroduced the abacus into Europe. I heard that the abacus was 
Arab, but I'm, I wasn't sure. Right. So, um, but that's like super interesting that a pope, you know, could be so intimately intertwined with, you know, Islamic yeah. uh, culture and uh, even like himself be like a, a deep scholar. You know? I mean, we have evidence of the crusader states in the in the Middle East, you know, in uh, Jerusalem, right. um, minting coins that are uh, that have Arabic inscriptions on them, but have Christian messages because of the fact that they were trusted more. Right. Um, and they, they, and the Pope told them to do this because they were like, we don't want you to use coins that basically propagate the legitimacy of Muslims. Mm. At the same time, nobody wants to use coins that don't have Arabic on them because it doesn't have the same level of... Um, worth because people aren't sure what it is people have right. to trust a coin in order to use it you know yeah, it's that yeah, sign yeah. of like you know the bad penny everyone wants to give it away no nah, i get that yeah anything to do with legitimacy and symbols just fascinates me that's really cool okay but yeah it's one of those things mm. yeah no i remember uh, again talking about conrad uh in his medieval uh, middle eastern class we yeah. learned about the quote-unquote clash of civilization between islam and christendom in yeah. the crusades and how that is just just uh, blown out of proportion. way blown out of proportion yeah. to the extent where you would get a crusader kingdom and a islamic city state mm. versus another crusader kingdom and a, another islamic city yeah, state yeah it was uh and, which is really interesting yeah and you also have to remember that there were still christians that lived in the middle east still right. live in the middle east i mean christianity started there started yeah. in Bethlehem. I mean, I, I don't want to get this wrong, and this is the last time I'm going to quote uh, Conrad, but he told me that Syria's population, and I think he was talking about Bilal al-Sham, yeah. finally swung in the favor of a Muslim majority around like 1200. I'm not sure, but like it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound um, doubtful, just because you have to remember that there were definitely um, other religions that were there. I mean, Zoroastrianism Whilst now it's not as prevalent in the Middle East, it's definitely there in South um, South Asia. And we were talking about this mm. in a seminar last week, but it existed and it was a really big religion. In Wasn't it the, yeah, it was the official religion of the, of the Sasanian Empire. Right. So, and then the Byzantine Empire, uh, the, uh, Christianity was a really uh, prevalent thing. And you have to remember that under the Caliphate, you were very much allowed to be whichever religion you were and they don't try and really convert you because of the fact that they got taxes out of you. <laughs> it was like the, through the Vimy? Yeah, through the Vimy. Through, okay. um, saying you can tr- um, be whatever religion you like, just pay us a little bit of money, which means, and it wasn't detrimental amounts of money. It was just enough to say, yep, we accept that you are our king mm-hmm. but, and at, or king leader, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, but at the same time, it was a good resource for revenue. Um, okay. And it was non-violent. Can we talk about that a little bit? The Dhimmi uh, issue, just a little bit. I get okay. that you're, it's not necessarily the remit yeah. of your uh, focus, yeah. uh, of your research, but I always find it interesting, right? Obviously, we're learning about. We're talking about, say, for instance, the eighth or the ninth century. Yeah. So it would be silly mm. of us uh, to um, apply our 21st century values to the eighth or the ninth century. Yeah. Um, but it's just one notion, not to like entertain crazy ideological people but it's always one notion that is espoused by um like anti-islamic rhetoric let's just say yeah. to keep it uh very general and broad that um oh islam is considered to be to have been a very reformist and a very open and tolerant religion but then you have the concept of forcing your non-muslim yeah. uh subjects to pay a tax yeah right uh and a lot sometimes i've seen they stress the notion of 
or because they're forced to pay a, a tax yeah. just for, for their beliefs, yeah. that inherently yeah. um, implies that they're second-class citizens, mm. right? Mm. Like, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that there there was a notion of if you wanted to get to the really high echelons of society, right. you had to be Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, I, by that, I mean the caliphs in a circle. But we do have evidence of people in the bureaucracy not being Muslim. Right. Um, but that's the same even way later. Like if you um, want to be a part of a European monarchy, up until modern times, you have to be a certain type of Christian, not just Christian. Right. Do you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas if you were a woman, mm-hmm. you could sort of marry into any level of Muslim society. Even if you're not Muslim? Even if you're not Muslim... By birth, but then you have to turn Muslim, no? I don't. So there are evidences of that not really happening. I really? mean, I'm not. I'm. I'm not on a religious point of view. Right. On a historical, no, of course, of course. Yeah. Um, of there not being really signs of you have to, but then we're also not sure what really happened. Because religiously, mm. right? Uh, if a Muslim man marries another woman that's not uh, yeah. a Muslim, she has to become a Muslim or not? I don't know. I know that their <laughs> children. I think I know that their sons have to be Muslim. Yeah, I, don't I think, think they're raised Muslim. Um, but there's a grey area there. There's definitely a grey area there. But okay. yeah, uh, but the whole idea of second class ship, it's more to say, it's more as an act of symbolic subservience. Like yeah, we accept your Muslim rule. I like that symbolic subservience. But okay. it's not actual. It's not what you would deem it today. Now, there was the, it did become more and more problematic as time went on. Um, but usually... How? Not at How? This time. How? How did it become uh, with, more problematic? Um, as in, when you get into, like, uh, later, way, way later, like, well, way, way later, like, a thousand years later, or, like, okay. 800 years later, where... Like, in uh, the 1800s and stuff like that? 1800s and Right, right, okay, okay. Um, with uh, the Ottomans, say, right. and the Ar- Armenians in the First World War. Right, All right. of that stuff. That be- and when I say that stuff, I don't mean to be flippant. I just mean that, yeah. obviously... That was an awful thing. Of course, of course. But that's, I think that's like the product of like <laughs> certain other themes and uh, ideas yeah, and issues. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that has much to do with Islam. It's more to do with like nationalism and things like that. Yeah, the, uh, when nationalism becomes a problem. Which so interestingly enough was imported from Europe. Uh, uh, I don't, yeah, let's not get into that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> for another day. Okay. Um, so how, you see these taxes, specifically like the Vimy tax. Mm. How forcefully... Was that enforced? Well, not forcefully. That's not the right word. I mean, how um, how serious? There we go. How serious were the authorities about uh, enforcing that tax? I think they were serious about all tax, but you have to remember that it was also like a confederation of states. In in and I don't mean to impose modern terms. It's just that they were um, regional rulers mm-hmm. who kind of had to send a certain amount back to the cat. Caliph in the right, middle, right, right, right. Um, and keep a little bit for themselves, obviously for administration and all mm-hmm. of that. Uh, but it wasn't what you would think today. Okay. Um, and also, when these people, when these other religions paid these taxes, they get to rule themselves. So okay. they get to set up their own... Um, oh, so the other religions, yeah. if they pay the Vimy tax, yeah. they have their own like autonomous like leaders almost, right? If they right? want to, yeah. Right, that's the uh, whole concept of the Ottoman millet system, I think. Maybe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Ottomans are your thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so you can, as long as you're not 
uh, ruining the status quo as in like big murders like uh, big, big crimes like murders or whatever mm. um, you can deal with it within your own community to do with your own holy book so if you want to wow, do, yeah. deal with it through the bible mm-hmm. or the Torah or I'm not sure what the Zoroastrian holy book is <laughs> the Avesta I think yes the Avesta right I don't know I think it's the Avesta yeah. um, then you get to do that okay that's so cool like think about how what kind of an image that gives off you know, in terms of uh, like an identity for Islam. Yeah, I mean... In my head, the buzzword that comes up in my head is just tolerance. Yeah, and and also the thing is, I'm not sure to what extent this actually happened because I haven't done the proper, proper research into it just yet. Um, I'm a first year. But the thing is, we do have written accounts of it being the case because obviously you have to remember that this is pre-modernization. This is pre... I mean, this is the early maritime economy, right? Mm. So they don't have time to police everyone right. you kind of sort of have to self-police yeah, anyway yeah. it's in the interest of the caliphate for communities to want to rule themselves okay and just pay a little bit back to whoever's at the center now whether that be a christian or a muslim as long as people are being left alone usually that doesn't make much of a difference interesting because That's whoever's in the middle they're in the middle and they don't have much to do with your life right right right, right. i like that small government i like the concept of small government i don't know yeah big government's kind of creepy I mean, why do you care what I do in my home? Anyway, uh, so who's your supervisor? We never spoke about that. Hugh Kennedy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Hugh Kennedy. Okay. How is he? Great. It's yeah? absolutely amazing. He's the best in um, the Abbasid period and even before. I read he? one of his books. I think it's uh, History of the Arabs or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty good book. I mean, he's the best in the world, so I'm not going to... He's been around for a long time, right? He has been... Teaching for around 50 years now. 50 years, huh? It's amazing. Longevity, yeah. that's yeah. that's great. Yeah, no, his book is really good. Well, that's really uh, that's really cool. Well, um, I think we can, uh, you know, wrap it up there. <laughs> I want to thank you for, for coming on the show. Well, the, thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed it. Yes. Okay, your, your topic definitely was fascinating. Um, and hopefully we can definitely have you on again and talk about something... That's related to your topic again. Cool. Okay. Um, Thank you all for joining us. This is going to be the first episode. Uh, Obviously, we're going to have plenty of episodes in the future. Uh, Considering this is the first episode, I would love it if you guys could get involved and let me know what it is that you liked and more importantly, what you didn't like about this. It could be anything. It could be me breathing too loud. Please let me know in the comments or on Instagram or whatever and I will try to improve for next time. I hope you guys had a good time. Peace.